Now, are there any Boston Red Sox fans in the house? There are. Wow. Well, then you would, you would probably know that since 1997, when the Fenway Park DJ uh, played this song in honor of the birth of a baby girl who was born to a staff member, that this song has been played every year since then. The title of which is? Sweet Caroline. Sweet Caroline. On April 20th, 2013, after the tragic bombing during the Boston Marathon, uh, musical icon Neil Diamond uh, arrived at Fenway Park for the Red Sox' first home game since that bombing. And he led the crowd with an eighth-inning rendition of Sweet Caroline. Now, here is how Diamond explained how that all came about. I quote him. He says, we landed in Boston a little more than an hour before the game. There was no band or music prepared for my appearance. I didn't really have a plan. They handed me a microphone, and I walked out on the field between the home plate and first base and sang along to the recorded version of the song that they usually use. That day, he says, was among the most memorable day of my career. That's when God came into the picture in such a beautiful and spontaneous way. Now, today we're going to look at how God came into the picture, how God became flesh, how God became one of us. Our text is John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. reading as follows. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to be a witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He, meaning John, was not the light, but came to be a witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the incarnation, which we just read about in these verses, has been called the power of presence. God's presence with us, with his people. Dorothy Sears calls it God having, quote, the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. In other words, God had said 
that this was how he was going to come to earth, and he, in fact, did that. Michael Spencer calls it, quote, an essential part of Jesus-shaped spirituality. He goes on to say, without the incarnation, Christianity isn't even a very good story. And most sadly, it means nothing. Being nice to one another is not a message that can give my life meaning or assure me of love beyond brokenness or break open the dark doors of death with the key of hope, end of quote. C.S. Lewis calls the incarnation the Son of God coming down to be a man in order to make us become sons of God. This is what he says. In the Christian story, God comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. So let's look at God becoming one of us, becoming man, coming down to lift us up from ruin and from death. Our first point this morning is there never was a time that he was not. In the beginning, John tells us, was the word. Now, the Greek word for beginning is the word arche. It is a word from which we get the word archaeology, which explains the science of going all the way back to the beginning of something's existence. So when John says, in the beginning was the word, he means that when human and biological life began, God was there. The word was there. The word existed even before the beginning, even before biological life began. The word, however, has no beginning. He was there in the beginning, but he has no beginning. The beginning is just a marker for when biological and human life began. But there never was a time when the word was not. The word existed in eternity. Now there are two dimensions by which we measure life span, or the span of life. One is time, or chronos, from which we get the word chronology. And the other is eternity, the Greek word being aion, which means having no beginning and no ending. Now, for us as human beings, we traffic in time. God traffics in eternity. In fact, Rick Warren um, initiated this quote, and I think it better helps us to understand the difference between um, time and eternity. The quote goes like this. If, if eternity were a line, then time would be a mere dot on that line. So think of a long line. That's eternity. Think of a mere dot on that long line, and that is time or life. There never was a time when the word was not. He existed even before the beginning. Now, here's the question for us this morning. If the word was there in the beginning, 
then where was he? John tells us in the passage, he tells us twice, as a matter of fact, and the word was with God. He was with God. What that means is that the word moved in the same circles that God moved in. The word was coexistent with God. The word was co-reigning with God. The word was co-creating with God. And he was in communion with God. That's why the book of Genesis tells us that when God would make man, he, he said to himself, let us make man. Because you see, God existed not just in one person, but in three. Let us make man in our own image. We'll say a little bit more about that later. But if the word was in the beginning, and if the word was with God, then who was the word? That's the question. Who was the word? John tells us that the word was God. The word was God. Well, if God was in the beginning, and the word was also in the beginning, and the word was God and with God, how can John say that the word was God? Are you following me? If, if the word was in the beginning, and he was with God, and if God was in the beginning, how can John say that the word was God? See, everybody's silent, so that probably means that you're not really following me. So by the question, by that question, does John mean that there were two gods? And that the word was in competition with God? Certainly not. Not at all. The Bible makes it clear that there is only one God, but that he exists in three persons, co-equal. And these three co-equal persons are referred to as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The word was in the beginning, and he who was in the beginning, and he who was with God, and he who was God, was the one who became Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, John uses two metaphors in this passage that we just read, which help us to better understand who he was. He is the word because he is God's promised word to us. Just as God spoke the world into existence way back then, in the beginning, just so God spoke the promise of his son into being. The son who would become born of a virgin, who would become Christ the Lord, he was God's word to us. God's spoken word to us. And so it was to him that God was referring when he spoke to Satan way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 after the fall. God speaking to Satan said this, he, meaning the word, Jesus, although we did not know him by that name then, he shall crush your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. It was to the word, to Jesus, that God was referring back then in Genesis 3.15. It was to the word that God was referring after he spoke to King Ahaz. And you know the story very well. God sent um, the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz and, and tells him 
as Ahaz and his country are besieged by these enemy nations, God said to Ahaz, ask me for a sign that I will deliver you and your people from your enemies. And Ahaz, King Ahaz, in arrogance, refused, saying, I will not ask. I can't put the Lord to the test by asking. And so God himself says this in chapter 7 of Isaiah, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So this is God's word that he's speaking into existence. It was to the word that the angel was referring when he told Mary in Luke chapter 1 and verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So he was the word, God's spoken word, that he spoke into existence. And he was also the word who was spoken or promised into existence. So that's the first metaphor that John uses to refer to Jesus, the word. Second, the second metaphor that he uses is the word, is, is light, the light. Now, not just any light, mark you. John goes on to tell us he was the true light. This true light came into a world that was filled with darkness However, the darkness would never be able to extinguish it or to overpower it. And so, John tells us that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, we know very well that Herod, King Herod, sought to extinguish it by killing every single uh, newborn baby or between, I mean, between birth and the age of two in order to get to the light. But thankfully, God helped him to escape to Egypt. Judas betrayed him for money, but he overcame that through the power of prayer and the power of love. The chief priests sought to extinguish it by hanging him on a cross, and then they sealed the tomb in which he was buried. But the power of God raised him from the dead. Communism has sought to extinguish it by banning Christianity and the Bible. But the light shines even brighter still. Our government has banished God and the Bible from the public square and from schools and from our courts. But the light shines brighter still. It shines in you. It shines in me. It shines at Christmas time through our generosity to one another, the giving of gifts, the sending of cards. There never was a time when the word was not, and there never will be either. Secondly, there came a time when he moved into our neighborhood. John tells us this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, it was Eugene Peterson in the message who translated the idea of the word coming to dwell among us as him moving into our neighborhood. God became one of us. 
God moved into our neighborhood and he made his home among us. Now, the Greek word that is translated dwelt among us is the same word for set up a tent. God became a man, set up his tent into our, in our neighborhood, in our backyard, if you will, and he moved right in. Now, in her book, Let Every Heart Prepare Him Room, Nancy Guthrie says this, and I quote her, If a family were to put up a tent in your backyard to live in, they would probably use your bathroom and have their meals around your table. They would be with you almost all the time, and no doubt, their lives would become intertwined with yours. End of quote. Notice, God came into our neighborhood. He came to dwell among us. He made his home among us. God wanted his life to become intertwined with our lives. God wanted to allow us to see him up close and personal. To get to see him and know him and to know that he was full of grace and truth. That he was Emmanuel or God with us. Now, just as he was with God in the beginning, he came to be with us in all our troubles, in all our trials, in our griefs, in our afflictions, in our sicknesses, in our troubles. But here's what we need to be very mindful of. Being God with us does not mean that we treat him as just another human being. He is the glory of the only Son from the Father who is to be worshipped as such. And so when we sing songs like, Oh, come let us adore him, because he's Christ the Lord. When we sing, let earth receive her king. When we sing, fall on your knees, we are affirming him to be the king of glory, the God of glory. Here's our third and final point, now is the time to make a clear choice. Here's what John says. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the Father, I'm sorry, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So to get back to Eugene Peterson's um, take, the word moved into our neighborhood. The word set up his tent among us in our own backyard. But here's the sad thing. He was rejected by his own people rather than being embraced by them. They didn't think that he could be their Messiah because, you see, he had come from Nazareth and the word had said, the prophecy had gone something like this, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. So nobody paid him any attention. Nobody thought that he could be their Messiah. Not only was he rejected, but he was crucified. And people today are still rejecting him. People are still refusing to have anything to do with him at all. People are still saying no to Jesus. 
people are still Xing him out of their calendars and out of their lives. But thankfully, there are millions from every nation, from every tribe, from every language who have, in fact, received Jesus. We have opened our hearts to receive him as our king, as our savior, as our messiah, as our Lord. And the Bible tells us that to all who have received him, he gave the right, the power, the privilege, the favor to become the children of God. Now, if you know, deep down in your heart this morning, if you know and you want to affirm that you are, in fact, children of God, may I hear you say, Amen. 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 Now, how does one become a child of someone else? The obvious answer is by conception. But there's another answer, by adoption. Two parents either come together to conceive a child or they decide to adopt a child. And the latter is precisely what God has done for every one of us who has in fact received him. He has adopted us as his very own children. And so John is telling us this morning in this passage that there is a clear choice to us. You can either reject Jesus as his own people did and as some people are still doing or you can receive him as many have done. Receive him as your savior. But the choice is yours. You are presented with a very clear choice and it is yours to make. Here's the bottom line of our message this morning that God has moved into our neighborhood in the person of Jesus Christ. There are three things I want you to do in response to this message. I'm pulling this first one straight out of a popular hymn that we sing every Christmas. Fall on your knees. Fall on your knees. Now don't let these be just words that you sing from your heads as part of a Christmas carol. Let these words move you to surrender, full surrender. Surrender to the one who is the word who was in the beginning and who was, in fact, God and who is. And when you acknowledge that, then bow down before him, fall on your knees before him, receive him as your savior, your king, your Lord, and your messiah. Here's the promise that comes with that. That when you do that, you receive from Jesus Christ himself the authority, the right, the power, the privilege to become a child of God. Amen. Secondly, I want to challenge you this morning to decide to intertwine your life more closely with his. Intertwine your life more closely with his. By that I mean, be intentional about asking God to breathe his very life into you. Because you see, without the life of God in us, we are dead. We need his life in us. I want to challenge you to give yourself more fully to Jesus. 
Let your life so intertwine with his that he is yours and you are his. Live for him who died for you. Give yourself entirely to this Jesus and to his service. In practical ways, that means don't be ashamed of him, whether in public or in private. Don't be ashamed to take your stand for him, even if it is in the public square, and even if your stands for him conflicts with what others are doing and saying. Let him make you, especially this Christmas, a person of truth and grace. Now, most of us are one or the other. We're either a person of truth or we are a person of grace. We either are not afraid to speak our mind and to tell it exactly how it is, or we are a person who errs on the side of grace. Jesus shows us how to do both. Let us be persons of truth and grace. Here's our third and final thing that I want you to do as a result of this message this morning. Bear witness to the true light. John tells us that the true light, who is Jesus Christ himself, has come into the world. And the reason he came into the world is to give light in a world that was filled with darkness. He has transformed us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And therefore, that carries a responsibility. We now must allow our lives to become so enlightened by the light that whenever we move in circles of darkness, we are dispensing light and chasing away the darkness. And so I want to ask you this morning to do this. Don't try to fit in anymore. You see, there's some of us as Christians, we try to fit in. We don't want to offend. We don't want to raise any eyebrows. We don't want to ruffle any feathers. So we try to fit in. But God has not called us to fit in. God has called us to stand out. Because that is the only way that you could really bear, uh, bear witness to the fact that the light of Christ has now made you different. Do we have anybody here this morning who is going to go away wanting for God to become their God? Do we have anybody here this morning who is going to go away from here wanting to become witnesses, better witnesses of the true light? Do we have anybody who is going to go away this morning as a result of this message saying, God, I want my life to become more closely intertwined with yours so that you are mine and I am yours. Let us pray together. Father, how grateful we are this morning to affirm and to reaffirm our faith in the one who was in the beginning, the one who became the word and the light, the one who became our Messiah, the one who now lives in our hearts as the Lord of our lives, the Savior of our lives. God, as we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate it with the full knowledge that we are the children of God, that you have redeemed us from our sins, you have delivered us from darkness into light, and you are making us children of grace and truth. We ask, O oh Lord, that your word would remain in our hearts 
that we'd be able to live it out and affirm it and affirm our faith in you this Christmas. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.